Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Our study has taken us up to the discussion of the, whole, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you haven't been here for all of that, it's impossible for me to summarize all of what we've done uh, to bring us completely up to speed and still get done with the talk that I have to give you. So it's a little bit tough. So I'm going to have to assume some things. And, uh, and wherever you're not crystal clear, you'll have to go back and listen to the talks, okay? Which are it's easy to do online. So we got to the subject of the baptism of, of the Holy Spirit, and uh, we're distinguishing between how, you know, your conservative church, for lack of a better term, really, versus charismatics, versus Pentecostals, and what that looks like, uh, how many times is it supposed to happen, and, and what happens to you when it happens, those kinds of things. So we, uh, so we, we said that we got these three groups of people. And they all believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Everyone believes that when you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit, which would be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But then uh, our Charismatics and Pentecostals believe that this can happen to you again, that the first time it's for salvation, and really the second time it's for power. So that becomes the next question. It's a power. And so in, in Charismatic circles, they'll say that when that power comes upon you, very often it's available and you can seek it and you should seek it, uh, that you would speak in tongues or that some other potential gifts might come your way, but they generally associated with it. doesn't have to always happen. Not all charismatics believe that. Some do, uh, but most of them believe it, 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 that the tongues are around, prophecy is around, all the sign gifts. And then you have Pentecostals who believe you will definitely speak in tongues. And if you haven't spoken in tongues, it's either possible you're not saved or you're not living with power. All right, so you can see you got three pretty dramatic differences that would lead you to say, well, I, I really can't, I'm not in this camp or I'm not in that camp or I am in this one. Now, in this camp here... Uh, this camp here generally, generally does not believe these gifts even exist anymore. So you can see how much of a difference in these categories you could be in. All right. Uh, and I'm going to speak to that in, in just a moment. So the argument that I was trying to make as it relates to this language. Okay. As it just relates to this language is. Does this happen one time or does it happen more time in your life? And if it doesn't happen, what are they describing here? And is it baptism of the Holy Spirit or is it something else, potentially? So I'm simply trying to argue that baptism of the Holy Spirit only happens one time in a person's life. That was the argument that I made, and I put it up here in this form. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time experience that occurs at the moment of salvation, and no speaking or sign gifts are required for its validation. That's what I'm trying to argue, all right? Uh, so, I basically, you have to answer, I said, a couple of questions. You have to look at all the texts on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the, the specific language of baptism of the Holy Spirit only occurs seven times in the Bible. 
Four of them occur in the Gospels where John the Baptist is the one speaking every time. And he says, I'll baptize you with water, but John will baptize you with the Spirit. And then you get to Acts, and that's when the Spirit comes down. And so Luke, who is the writer of Acts, points out in two verses. Still haven't fixed that. It's 11.16. 1, 5 and 11, 16, uh, Points out twice in the book that what's going on in Acts is this. All these are is quotations of this. So no matter how you slice this, Acts and the Gospels are talking about the same thing. So if somehow, and then the only other time it's spoken of is in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So if somehow this is different than this, you could argue there's two baptisms of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? Okay. Uh, but if you, if, if you argued that these were the same thing, then you wouldn't see baptism of the Holy Spirit happening twice or more than once. So you kind of have to figure out what's going on in Acts, and then you have to figure out whether what's going on in what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 12 is the same as what's going on in Acts. So last week, we spent time looking at Acts, or a couple weeks ago. We said the Holy Spirit comes down once at Pentecost, and when it does, the, the uh, 120 who are in the room, they, they, uh, the Spirit comes upon them, they speak in tongues, and turns out to be that they're speaking languages of all the people that came. And every one of them here in their own dialect. So we know that tongues here on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 are languages, actual known languages that people hear. So if that's all we had, this would be an easy conversation. But when you go through Acts, you have uh, what we called Theology is called three mini Pentecosts, three mini ones. Whereas this is a, a massive group of people, and the Spirit comes on the 120 and they speak, and there's this evangelistic moment. Um, then it happens in Acts 8 to the Samaritans, a whole different group of people. And then it happens to Cornelius' family, a family, in chapters 10 through 11. And then you have uh, chapter 19, and we worked our way all the way to here to chapter 19, and I'm just going to sum up the arguments that I tried to make. Why are there three other Pentecosts? If there's only one time the Spirit comes down, why were there three other ones? Because that's a question you'll have to wrestle with as you decide which category you're in. Okay? And so what I have argued, uh, very simply, is that what is, what's going on in Luke is First of all, the gospel is going to critical, it's crossing critical geographical, cultural, and racial boundaries. And so in order for that to happen, uh, some special sign has, remember this is a Jewish, this is the God of Israel, including Gentiles, which is what all these categories are. This is the Jews, these are Gentiles. Samaritans are half Jews. Then you got Cornelius who's a Gentile, and you can read that whole story, and you can see that the reason it happens three other times is to convince the early church, the beginning, and the Jews, and the apostles, that what happened to them is the same thing that happened to these guys so that they would include them in. It means that once you get past here, you should not expect these mini Pentecosts to happen anymore. 
That's what I'm arguing. That each one of these are special things, that they're not going to happen, that you can't, I'm arguing that you can't individualize that and say, well, I'm waiting for my mini Pentecost. That's what I'm arguing. All right? So that was the argument I gave. You can go back to the talk to see why. Now, you could see if you're standing around, what happens to a person if they're standing around waiting for a mini Pentecost to happen in their life? That somehow you get saved and sometime later in your life this other thing happens to you. And describing what that other thing is can be really confusing and it can get, it creates two categories of Christians. And there's this Christian who just sort of stumbles along and then there's this Christian that experiences all these incredible powers and things and you end up being the guy left out. Is that legitimate? Is that a legitimate category? So you're going to have to ask yourself some hard questions. What is the rest of the New Testament? When we get past Acts, what does the rest of the New Testament suggest for me and what I should be experiencing? So we need to, we need to kind of get to that. Now, I was going to spend a little time talking about these folks in Acts 19, in Acts 19, you have a whole different group of people. You, Paul comes upon this group of people uh, in, in Ephesus. Okay, imagine you're just trekking along, and the gospel's trekking along. He finds some disciples. This is really interesting. He finds some disciples there. This is an interesting group of people. Did you receive the Holy Spirit, Paul says, when he runs into these, this group? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? There's the question. By the time you get to Acts 19... Paul is assuming you should have already had that. That should have happened already when he meets this group of believers. They said, no, we haven't gotten it yet. So you stop right there and you go, well, if they haven't gotten it yet, that means you can be a Christian and then later get this? What happens? Well, let's see. They replied, no, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit yet. You haven't even heard of it yet? Yes, because the gospel hasn't gotten there yet. This is a group far enough away from Jerusalem and Pentecost that they haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. Well, you say, well, who are you people then? And he goes, Paul says, well, into what were you baptized then? What were you baptized into? And he says, into John's baptism. That's John the Baptist. These guys are in a spiritual, literally a a, a historical redemptive time warp from Old Testament to the time the Spirit came down, they're living in between those two. Listen, you don't know anyone in your life ever who will ever live in this category again. There's some people who might look old enough to be related to John the Baptist and heard him preach, but no one's in this category again. So he runs into this group of people, and he says, you guys, that's a baptism of repentance. That's preparatory. Uh, John was telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. They hadn't heard of that yet. Listen, no one can live in that category anymore. And so he says... And when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the water baptized in the name of Jesus now. And then Paul placed his hands on them and the Spirit came upon them. And they began to speak in tongues too and prophesy. But remember, there's no one here to, to, to speak to in different languages. There's, 
He says there's 12 of them. Why do you think he says there's 12 of them there? When I say there's 12 of them, what does the 12 say to you when you hear it? You think of apostles. These guys weren't apostles. It's just a way to connect you to. This is another group of people. Got to be connected to the apostles somehow. And the way to do that is they speak in tongues and they prophesy. But there's no group they're speaking to. They just do it. So why do they do it then? So that, so that, really, it looks like what happened in Acts 2. Because if it doesn't look like this, the Jews aren't going to accept them. We're not in a category of time on either one of these issues. So these many Pentecosts happen as the Spirit is bursting through these new geographic and racial categories. That's what I'm arguing. Okay? Now, there are lots of people who come to Christ in between these in Acts. Two dozen, around two dozen people give their life to Christ. There's no speaking in tongues. There's no indi- With individuals, it never happens. It only happened in these three critical geographic and racial boundaries as the Spirit's bursting through them. So that's why we don't say any one of us should be seeking a personal mini-Pentecost. These were all groups. Not some of them got it and some of them didn't. They all did it. So there was never a distinction between, well, you don't all get it at the same time or anything like that. That issue didn't even exist. It came on all of them as verification that these groups match this group. And the book of Acts is the, the burden of the book of Acts is to include Gentiles and to show the gospel breaking through barriers. And for the Jews and the church to accept them required that they experience. And as you read through Acts, you see it. And I shared that last week. So that's what I wanted to tell you. Now, the other issue is 1 Corinthians 12, 13, because here's the only other time you see the phrase. We just saw an Acts. Now, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink one spirit. So the question becomes, what does it mean to be baptized by the Spirit here. Is it the same thing he's talking about in Acts? If it's not, then you can argue that this happens one time, and then you can expect the the kind of thing that happened in Acts to happen again. But the language is all the same. Paul never uses baptism of the Spirit any other place. And I'll tell you the thing about this text, and I'll tell you what the key is that you can address and what the issue is. But let me say to you what everyone believes doesn't matter what category you're in. Let me tell you what everyone believes about this verse here first. And that's this. Everybody in 1 Corinthians 12 gets it. There's no, hey, you get it now, you'll get yours later. Everyone gets it. Everyone believes this. Uh, It's at salvation. Everyone gets baptized uh, by the Spirit into one body. That happens at salvation. It never happens again. Every category believes that. Every category believes you become part of the body, and every category believes it only happens once. So there's no debate there. Here's the debate. The debate is, the debate is, when Paul uses this little preposition here, and it literally boils down to prepositions, 
in one spirit into one body. So you got to get technical there. And I just listened to a couple of sermons from people right in our area, and they all get technical with their congregation, and they try, and they, and they use grammar and prepositions. So you're about to get it too. I don't, didn't want to have to do it, but you got to do it in order to explain this. So the question becomes, because, uh, because the case and the grammar and this kind of thing, what, what is this preposition saying? Is this preposition saying, I am baptized in the Spirit, into it, so the, I'm baptized into the Spirit, or is it saying, I'm baptized by the Spirit, the Spirit is doing the baptism, not baptized into it. Or is it saying that the Spirit is the agent and baptizing me into... So if I say to you, it's um, the best way to illustrate this. Uh, and it's all going to boil down to how you understand that. Because if you understand it uh, by agent, the, it's, the Spirit is actually baptizing you into something. When all the other ones in Acts are Jesus is baptizing you into the Spirit. Do you see the difference? All the ones in Acts, Jesus is baptizing you into the Spirit. So if this is the Spirit baptizing you into something, then we got two different baptisms of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? That's the difference. Then it boils down to how do you understand that preposition and the grammar of this text. And here's what we know. In all of the other texts, the Spirit is never the agent. Jesus is always the one doing it. The Spirit is not baptizing you into anything. Okay? That is what's key. So, it's either the means, the Spirit is doing it, okay? Or you are getting baptized into the Spirit, but someone else is actually doing it. Does that make sense? And in every other text, in every other text where baptism is used with this preposition... With this preposition, in this case, uh, the Spirit is never the agent. The Spirit is never the one doing it. And um, well, the Spirit is never the one doing it in any of those in any of those cases. So. Um, That's your debate. That's where the debate boils down to. Now, there's a couple of things that lead me to believe that, first of all, the grammar alone, just the grammar alone, which I'm not going to walk you through uh, because you will not like me, all right, if I do it. You will not like the grammar if I walk you through the grammar. But um, so you're... So the Spirit, you're either, so here's what I'm arguing. You're either baptized into the Spirit, and it's the element, and Jesus is baptizing you into it. Because here's the problem. If you say, Jesus baptizes you in the Spirit, and then you come back later and say, the Spirit baptizes you into Jesus, because that's what they're arguing, I'm going, that's redundant. It would never happen. That's not what's going on theologically. Theologically, they're the same thing. And they happen once and at salvation and you're baptized either by the Spirit okay, or you're baptized into the Spirit, one or the other. And that's what I think is this preposition is the best way to understand this preposition, either in it or by it. 
And, and it's not easy to determine. One of the things that leads me to believe in is the best one is the parallel at the bottom. We were all made to drink of one spirit. That would be the element. Because you're not baptized into it. You're actually taking it in. It's the element that you're taking in. So here it would be element. So that would mean in might get a little bit. It can be either one of these. But it can't be agent. The spirit's not doing the baptizing. It's either the means or it's the element. That's what I'm arguing. If that's the case, then the baptism, the Holy Spirit baptism in 1 Corinthians and in Acts are the same. Jesus is baptizing you in the Spirit. Now, Jesus is the agent. Uh, I think it's important to note that you're baptized in the Spirit, and when you're baptized in the Spirit, the goal of that, that's this preposition here, into, what are you baptized into? You, are, you become part of the body of Christ. Now, I'm just going to say this to you because we don't have time to apply it right now, but that ought to make you sit back and say, oh, my goodness, if this happens one time and it's such a big deal in a believer's life that as soon as they become Christians and they're baptized into the Spirit or by it, the very first byproduct of that is that you're part of a church community. That means whatever spirit life is growing out of that is not just about me alone. It's about me and the group. And if I do not define my spiritual life in terms of the group, I will be missing something very, very important that the spirit's trying to accomplish. Don't have time to go into that. That's the practical application. So here's what I'm saying. I'm simply arguing, uh, and by the way, Great scholars on both, like even uh, Gordon Fee, I've told you before, Assemblies of God, he believes the same way here on 1 Corinthians. I think grammatically, theologically, uh, it's a far better understanding of 1 Corinthians 12. That means they're the same. That means there's only one baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we could get more technical than that. I just don't know that you'll enjoy that. So if you have, any, if you have technical questions, you can... Let me, you can let me know. Now, where does that leave us? So where does that leave Hillside? Um, well, let me say this. There's two issues that we still haven't gotten to, and the series isn't about them, but I want to say something about them. And that's this. What about the gifts? And what about this power? Because I think where our charismatic and Pentecostal friends do help us is they do help us think about these things in ways that conservatives on the other side tend to just drop completely out because they just say that it doesn't exist. All right? And, and then this, this issue, too, what power look like and that kind of thing. So let me say this about um, the gifts, and then I want to talk to you about this piece here quickly. All I want to do is say about the gifts because this series is not about the gifts, but I want to say this about tongues. Uh, I told you at this series that even though uh, most conservatives aren't here, I'm, I don't necessarily fully buy into the cessation argument, which is the argument that these spiritual sign gifts ceased with the apostles. That's the argument for this group here. Uh, 
with the apostles going away, these, these things went away. But I, I don't necessarily think that that, I mean, I think there's some good stuff in that argument. And there are some differences and some changes. But I just don't think they're all gone. Now, with that said, not willing to call myself the third wave yet. I've been reading about the third wave. And some of it troubles me, what's in the third wave. And so I'm thinking through that. Not ready to give you a position, but I'm not fully comfortable with everything the third wave holds. Third wave is basically the group that says, this only happens once, but these gifts are still around, and they're trying to figure out how to get them in the church, and I think they do some really good things, but I'm not ready to, to buy into all of it, and I'll explain why. Um, because I believe that with the coming of Scripture, let me just tell you why you're a cessationist at some degree, even if you would say, I'm not a cessationist. Let me tell you how you are a cessationist, probably. You're a cessationist in the sense that any prophecy done in these categories, if you would relate it to the authority of Scripture, then you would be in a completely different category than I would be in because I'm telling you that no, we don't believe anyone's walking around who when they speak, they speak with the authority of Scripture. Do you believe that? If you believe that, if you don't believe that that's the case, then you're a cessationist at some level. In other words, whoever was prophesying in the Bible, when they prophesied, it became Scripture. I don't know that anyone is prophesying today that we would put it on the standard of the authority of Scripture, which means whatever prophecy is, even if some of it is still around, it's not to the level of Scripture. And so that means there's a difference some differences in however they understood prophecy then and how it must be understood today. It can't be the exact same thing, at least at that level. And I will tell you, tongues isn't the big issue. Prophecy is. Prophecy is by far the more complicated thing. And you will read more, more ink has been spilled in trying to define what prophecy is. Because the third wave will say this. Guy walks up to you in church and says, I think you're going to have a really bad week. But you know what's going to happen Thursday is this great thing's going to happen to you Thursday. It's going to make up for all of it. And you go home clapping. You suck it up Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And you're waiting for Thursday, and then Thursday doesn't happen. The third wave says everybody gathers back in church that day, and they just go, well, Johnny got it wrong. Sorry, Bob. I'm not ready to go there with that yet. That's just not comfortable for me yet. So I haven't defined what prophecy is. I haven't fully thought through all of it. All I'm saying is the definitions are very hard to come by. And almost, almost no one in these categories agrees prophecy is the same thing. And that makes it even more difficult to know, well, how do you know what it is and how do you know how to test it and all those things? It's very, it's very complicated. The third wave, I think, is doing a really good job, probably the best I've seen of what that looks like in a congregation because they're letting that happen in a congregation. But because they don't believe prophecy is, is Scripture authority, Johnny's allowed to be wrong with his prophecy. And I just don't know if I could handle that. I don't know how much damage that does to people. I just don't know. Because I'm not in that circle and I don't want to, I'm just saying, I'm not sure I can buy. That's just one element that I'm not sure I want to call myself third wave yet because I'm not sure I can go there yet. That it's okay for Johnny to be wrong with his prophecy. 
I, I just don't know. I'm not, I'm not throwing it completely under the bus because there are some arguments for Johnny being able to be wrong a little. If it's not the authority of Scripture, can Johnny be wrong? Well, maybe. You got to test it. Then you got to go, well, how do you do that? So it's complicated is all I'm trying to say. Um, so very difficult to define. I do think the sign gifts in terms of being attestation for things is gone. Hebrews 2, 3 to 4 says that. We're not using sign gifts to prove anything. We're just, I think that the gifts operate in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I just think the complicated thing is figuring out what it looks like and how they work. Uh, the second thing, third thing I would say is uh, not all the gifts. I don't think anyone's walking around with the gift of healing. I think healing happens, and I think, well, I'll address the whole issue of healing in a minute. I just don't think anybody's walking around with that gift. I think healing happens, but I don't necessarily think we got to go see Fred for that to happen. That's just my opinion, all right? Um, and I don't believe you're more, but I do believe people do speak in tongues, mostly privately. I know people who do it. I, I can't, I've never heard it. Never heard anyone do it privately, but I've had people, I had a fellow this week tell me that they spoke in tongues. Well, if you tell me you speak in tongues, you know, whether when you got saved you spoke in it or now in your own prayer time you speak into it, that's great to me. I'm not, it's not hurting my feelings. I, I'm not upset about that. I'm not saying you didn't have it. But I'm also not thinking you're more spiritual than me because you did it. Nor should you think you're more spiritual than me because you didn't do it. That's another thing. So if somebody tells you they speak in tongues, good for you. I showed mercy this week. It's another gift. I, I did, you know, I taught. That's a gift. I, we're all speaking gifts. Nobody's better or worse because of, it, because of any one of those gifts happening. That's where you don't want to go. Uh, so I can celebrate with anyone using their gift. Um, nor do I think gifts are the primary way that the Spirit reveals himself in your life. I think there are lots of other ways. I think the Spirit, in terms of gifts, has something to offer, but I, obviously, but I don't think it's the primary thing that everybody ought to be thinking about every day. And in these other groups, they tend to do that, and I just do it a little bit less because of what Paul does. Once you leave... Once you leave Acts, what does the rest of the New Testament now do with the Spirit? And it does different stuff. It does a lot of different stuff. Um, for instance, all three categories, conservatives, charismatics, and Pentecostals, will tell you Paul never talks about a second blessing or a second experience or a second thing that needs to happen to you. All categories agree with that. If you're going to develop a multiple baptism of the Spirit experience, you're doing it in Acts. You cannot do it in Paul. Impossible. For Paul, the synchronon of becoming a believer, the, the, in other words, the critical thing is that you get the Spirit immediately, and there is no arguing that. There's no Pentecostal that will argue it. There's no charismatic that will argue it. When you get saved, you get the Spirit final, done, over don't even discuss it. And Paul has no moment in a spiritual life. I say Paul, but the rest of the New Testament, including Paul, 
never have a moment, never tell you to seek it, and never tell you you need something other than salvation to get the Spirit. That's just a fact. All three categories agree with that. However, you do have um, a verse like Ephesians 5.18. I'm just going to jump to that wherever I see it. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I think we need to talk about this, and then I need to give you some application to this. This language here of being filled, we need to look at. Then we need to look at the way the rest of the New Testament and Paul. Paul will tell you to walk in the Spirit. He will tell you to be led by the Spirit, that you will be led by it in Romans 8. And they're all language that sort of pretty much is explaining the same concept here. All right, what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So um, let's talk about that and then a final application piece. Um, I would tend to argue to you that being filled with the Spirit... So here's, here's the great debate. Is, is, is the Spirit the content? In other, words, in other words, am I getting more of the Spirit? Or am I... Um, or is the Spirit just influencing me? And... When should that happen? How does it happen? How do you feel it? All these sort of questions come as a result of it. Uh, filled with the Spirit. This is what I would say. It's intermittent. It can happen different times. It can, it's not always visible to the person being filled or anyone around the person being filled. Filling is influence, just like alcohol is. It's the influence on you. So you have this question. Uh, if you're not filled with the Spirit, does that mean you're empty of the Spirit? Is it all or nothing? And I wouldn't say that. I would say most of us are probably uh, being filled with it or influenced by it at some level all the time. But there are moments when it influences you more in some categories and cases in your life. Now, in this context, it's all about character and transformation for Paul in Ephesians 4, 32. 25 to 32, it's all about being, becoming a certain kind of person, how you talk, how you, how you live, how you live your life, all those kinds of things. Um, so, uh, so here's what I would say because I asked you a question. Ephesians, I'm just going to walk you through this because I don't, I don't have time. I'm doing this really fast. In Ephesians 1.23, you are filled with the fullness of God. Because if you're going to understand what filled means in Ephesians 5.18, you've got to understand what filling means in all of Ephesians. And I'm going to show you. First of all, this is a fact. When you get saved, you're filled with the fullness of God. And then when you get to 3.19, Paul says, prays, that you may actually uh, uh, experience more fullness. And then in, and then in chapter 4, verse 13... Uh, fullness is viewed as, the, as, as maturity, as you continue to grow and become mature. And then in 5.18, you're told to be filled more. What are you filled with? Are you filled with more spirit? Are you filled with more of God? Well, that's what all these fillnesses are. All these fullnesses are, are maturity, character, his presence. Wait a minute. If I get the fullness at the start of creation, there's also a sense in which I'm not completely full yet, and I'm always trying to be more full. 
So we don't like the idea of, we, as conservatives, we like to say, you get the spirit, you got all the spirit, you don't get any more spirit. I don't think Paul would be satisfied with that. Paul would say, no, 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 you do fully get the spirit in a salvation sense and in your presence. But you can experience his fullness, and by fullness in all three of these categories, you become more like God as the spirit's working on you. So you're not getting more spirit quantifiably at one level, but on the other hand, he's doing more in you and it's showing in your life and character. So there is a sense in which you can say you don't get any more of God than you get when you get saved. There's also a sense in which you do get more of God as he becomes more evident in your life. Does that make sense? They're both true. So I got... I just I, I left out a lot of technical stuff to get you to that point. And now I'm going to give you just rattle off these practical things. What should we be expecting here? I told you last week, can you have more of God, and what does that look like in your life? Um, here's what I would say. Number one, where I think as conservatives, we have sort of, shortchange the Holy Spirit in this regard. And here's the places I think we have. Number one, I don't think we, we, we pray confident enough. I think you and I pray very, very laissez-faire as it relates to, I don't know what God's going to do, and I ain't expecting too much, so that if he doesn't do it, I didn't get my feelings hurt. That's kind of how we pray. We believe God can heal, but we don't really live like he can. And I would say that accusation to us is probably ought to be well taken. Don't you agree? I had a woman walk up to me last week, two weeks ago, and say, why don't we pray more confidently in this church? And for a minute, you know, when you're the pastor of the church, you're like, oh, let me defend our church on confident prayer. But then I had to look at her and say, you know, we do sometimes, but then other times, you're right, we don't. We could probably have a greater prayer life if we believe the Spirit of God really is doing stuff. In, in, in us, through us, around us. I had, I was telling our staff, Tammy, the, the gal in our church who's blind, she serves coffee, she's servant here, um, came up to me about um, six weeks ago, maybe eight weeks ago now, walks up to me up there. And she says, Pete, I need you to pray for me. And I said, what's the matter? She said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing vertigo really badly, and, I, and I'm like 24-7 constantly. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Now, I've had vertigo a couple of times. If you've never had it, this is a horrible experience. You would never want it to last more than a minute, five minutes. After that, you, your world is spinning. You think you're flying around the, you know, the universe. It makes you sick. And so here I'm sitting there with Tammy, and I can talk to Tammy like this. I said, yeah, I just, you know, we need to talk to God about that because, I mean, you already can't see. We need, to look, we need to figure out what the ear problem is. I'm joking with her a little bit on that. And then I grab a hold of her. She says, Peter, I want you to pray for me. When Tammy prays, I mean, she prays like something's going to happen. So I grabbed a hold of her. 
and I prayed for it. And I prayed from the bottom. I prayed as hard as I've ever prayed for anything. And there's certain times when, when the energy in you, you just pray with all you have. And I prayed for her, and she left. And i got to admit, as she left, I thought, I, I don't know if that's going to help. I don't know. I don't know if God's going to actually fix that. Two weeks goes by. Tammy's at the coffee booth, and I walk up to her, and I go, Tammy, how are you feeling? She goes, Pete, from the moment you prayed, I haven't had vertigo since that moment. And I went. <laughs> okay, on the one hand, I'm thinking, God, you did something amazing. But I never went to the second thing. Well, as long as Pete prays for you, you'll be fine. Because here's where you don't want to go. Don't ever think to yourself, God must heal. He doesn't must heal. He can. And I think he does. And we ought to expect it more. We ought to pray more confidently. That would be the one thing I would say. Second thing I would say is we ought to, our, our worship lacks a little vitality. Our prayer lack, lacks a little confidence and our worship lacks a little vitality. You come into a conservative church, we're pretty dead in here. Let's just be honest. We've had people leave this church because it feels dead to them. And on the one hand, I want to say, well, people worship differently. Let's not get caught up in what anybody else is doing. On the other hand, we could be a little bit more vibrant. I'll tell you what you ought to do one Sunday. Go stand in the back and look around at the congregation and assess it and just sort of think to yourself, yeah, there's people in this room not even facing the stage. There's people in the room not singing. There's people in the room probably not thinking about any of the verses that are going up there right now. Uh, other things are on their mind. They're not even thinking about it. It doesn't happen. And there's, there's a sense in which some vitality, and, and we get concerned about emotionalism, and believe me, that's always been an issue. I don't want anybody to get too emotional. I don't think emotional defines anything about spirituality, including worship. But I don't think the Holy Spirit necessarily leaves emotions out as if he's only concerned about the left brain. Do you think the Holy Spirit's only concerned about the left brain? Or do you think he's concerned about the right brain too? And the right brain has a little bit of energy. I mean, haven't you? What does it mean? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been joyful and then been really joyful? Would you say, well, he didn't really have enough? You wouldn't say he didn't have joy. But there's a difference between being excited. Thank you so much for the Father's Day gift. That was great. And then there's, oh my gosh, what did you get me? And all I'm saying is that sometimes we ought to be a little more, there ought to be a little more vitality in the truth we just sang. You know, we ought to feel it a little bit. I'm not saying it's, you got to be, please don't run around here (laughs) and distract But I'm just saying, don't you think it's possible that you could get, if you could get excited about anything in life, can't you sometimes get a little excited about it? We can't even clap through a whole song in this congregation. (laughs) We're like, okay, that's enough of that. Let me try your coffee a little bit. And then we come back to singing. That's how we worship sometimes. I think we could all to come together a little bit more and get into it a little bit more. Would you agree with that? I'm not trying to spank you here. I'm not trying to spank you. I'm just saying we could get into it a little bit more. And I'm including myself because Gail's always a, Gail's a hopper. 
You know, I'm like, stop the hopping. <laughs> I'm not a hopper. You know, knees, stuff. And... All right, here's the third one. Our, I'm just only going to mention it because I've mentioned it before. Our evangelism lacks boldness. I don't know if we really think that the Holy Spirit can really do a lot with us. We're scared. We're way too scared. You go in Acts, and these people, these apostles who were scaredy cats prior to Jesus rising from the dead are anything but scaredy cats. They're not scared of anything when it comes to a conversation. Not the worst guy at your job, not the smartest guy at your job, or the worst guy at your job intimidates anyone who's confident in the Holy Spirit. I think our spirituality sometimes lacks true transformation. Um, I don't know that we really seek to change. I think sometimes in our group, because we've sort of ousted the spirit out, what happens is we're very content to be nice, go to church. We like having a list of sins we'd never do. I'd never do that. And that makes us happy in our spiritual life. I think there's far more to the spiritual life. You becoming a different kind of person, a more loving person, a less angry person, a less stingy person, and a more giving person. If you're happy just being the nice family on the block, you missed it. God's trying to transform you, and the Spirit's job is to do it, and that's why in Ephesians 4 you grieve him when you're not. I think sin bullies us way too much in the conservative circles. We need to do some sin-kicking butt. And we don't do enough of it because we don't think we have the power to do it. You can overcome lust. You can overcome greed. Not every day. It's not like you're not going to have, the, you're going to fix the problem today and not have it tomorrow. I'm just saying you could win a little more. Quit being bipolar as a Christian. You're either way up here or way down there. You're either rocking for God or you suck. Nobody's even, you don't even know where God is. You haven't talked to him in years. I'm like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. We got to come here somewhere. And live a little more confidently and capable and expectant of the Spirit to change us. I'm meddling now, and I'm sorry, but I'm just trying to get... I'm, I, and listen, you need to know, Hillside, and this is always true. I've thought through what I'm saying to you, and it all applies to me. And there isn't one of these points that don't fully apply to me. Not one of them. And I've always told you that if God's going to kick my behind on something, I'm going to kick yours on it. <laughs> and then the last one is, I think our journey lacks adventure. I just think there's a whole lot more things God could do in and through you, but you're just scared to try anything. He speaks to you, but you ignore it. He, he tries to prompt you to serve somewhere, and you don't. you got all these reasons and excuses why, and, and there's just adventure that's lost in what we could do. Some of you, even sacrifices, like in the giving campaign. You know, as you start to give in the giving campaign, you realize what you promised. You wonder, hey, I wonder if I'm going to be able to do this starting to hurt a little bit. It's okay for it to hurt a little bit. That's part of what it means to be in an adventure. Bad days. If you try to avoid all the bad days, you'll avoid all the adventure. 
You need to jump in and it's going to be painful. And then you say, God, if you, I'll, I'll just trust you. I won't necessarily trust you that because I gave to you, you're going to give to me because that's not how it works. Ask Job. Doesn't work that way. I'm not looking for things, God, but I am trusting you. Even if you don't bless me with that new thing I really want, even though I've been a giver. Kingdom mindset, if you have a kingdom mindset, you're going to lose out on the deal sometimes. And you, we got to be able to do that. I got other stories and all. Let me just, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to, read this years ago. God brought it back to my mind in a book I haven't opened in at least a decade. It's a little book by Tim Hansel. And in it, at the end of the book, and it's a book about adventure spiritually. And I remember it really impacting me. At the end of the book, he says that he, he reads this. In, the author's anonymous. It's called The Road of Life. Listen to this and we'll close. We'll walk out of here. At first... I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there sort of like a president. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I really didn't know him. But later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike, and I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know one just when it happened that he suggested we change places, but life hasn't been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring and predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points, but when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains through rocky places at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. Even though it looked like madness, he said, pedal. I worried and was anxious and asked, where are you taking me? He laughed and didn't answer. And I just started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered the adventure. And when I'd say, when I'd say I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts of healing, acceptance, joy. They gave me gifts to take on my journey, my Lord's and mine. And then we were off again, and he'd say, now, give those gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. So I did. So the people we met, I found that I was giving what I had received, and our burden was even lighter, and we could move faster. I did not trust him at first in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows little bike secrets. He knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners. Knows how to jump to clear high rocks. Knows how to fly to short and scary passages. And I'm learning to just shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face. And my delightful, constant companion, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure I just can't do it anymore, he just smiles and says, pedal. Isn't that good? And I don't know, maybe you're still driving the bike. Maybe you haven't even gotten on a bike. Or maybe right now you're on a journey and you're like, oh my gosh, am I scared. If you're scared right now about something that God has you on, then you're in a good place. Lord, I'm late again. I went too long. I pray you'll help us get out of here fast and safely. And I pray that everything that was said today would honor you and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know.
catch you next time.